0: To the study of the book of Acts today, after a week away, and I invite you to follow in God's Word. I think you concentrate more on what's being said if you have the Scripture open. Acts 4, verse 32 through 5.11 is what I'll be reading today as we continue to see the development of the gospel in the early church in Jerusalem. Listen to God's word. Acts 4:32. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's holy word. Breathe from his mouth, from his mind. It is truth to us in every possible way. I'm sure you've heard as I have the criticism leveled at Christians and Christianity by someone who is normally a cynical outsider, the sentence that they will say, the church is full of hypocrites. And having said that, Some people will triumphantly dismiss Christ and everything Christianity is with a wave of their hand as if that simplistic hypothesis ended everything. Is the church actually full of hypocrites? My answer is, of course it is. And I admit to being among the chief of them. That criticism proves nothing, not if we're allowed to define terms, because there are two distinct varieties of hypocrite. There is the blatant, dishonest hypocrite who leads a double life. He says, Jesus is my Lord. My life is submitted to God and lived before his word, and and Jesus is my Savior, and I'm trying to live a godly life. And people from the world as well as within the church look at that life and sooner or later are able to see things like addictions to drugs or alcohol or to pornography or adultery or lying, greed, business fraud, selfishness. These things aren't easily hidden. And after a while, people see through a flimsy charade and they say, that's a Christian? And you know how they react. However, there's also another variety of hypocrite who far outnumbers the first class. And I'm ready to call them honest, transparent hypocrites. That is, those of us who hopefully acknowledge that our lives, of course, have inconsistencies and gaps where our obedience does not measure up to the gospel by which we've been justified and declared righteous in the sight of God. We're declared righteous in Christ, but we're not yet, in terms of our behavior, entirely righteous. We're being sanctified. We're being changed as we go on in the Christian life, and there's still a lot of work to do. And we fully acknowledge, of course you can look at my life and see inconsistencies. I'm the first one to help you point them out. And I'm praying about these things and I'm laying these things at God's feet and saying, Lord, forgive me. That's a completely different kind of hypocrite than the dishonest one who would say he does not have hypocrisy. Now, every church... In every age of history has had in its midst, certainly, a small band, a minority of the dishonest, the first class of hypocrite, those who really are not ready to admit or acknowledge great disparities between what they claim in terms of faith and what they live. And some of those people get into pulpits, and some of them are elders, and some are deacons, and some are leading examples of the women's ministry or whatever, Sooner or later, they usually become exposed. Very seldom do they go on for decades without someone seeing through the cracks. But the vast majority of Christian disciples, I hope, are in the second category. I know they are. Those of us who know we're incomplete, know we're still being transformed, know there's a lot of work to do, and we're the first to tell God. Oh, I really blew it there. Oh, my goodness, I need forgiveness over here. I spoke more than I was able to perform over there. And guess what, folks? If you're new here, let me tell you something. This church is one that welcomes honest, humble hypocrites. Join the rest of us, please. You're most welcome. Our study in Acts brings us to this section where we have already seen Overt, even violent, hateful persecution come against the gospel and not be able to stop it. The apostles were commanded, don't preach in the name of Jesus, don't preach the resurrection. They went right on obeying God instead of men. That outward opposition did not stop them. So now we have another first in the book of Acts. The opposition of Satan from within the church. Deliberate hypocrisy arising from two professed believers who shockingly die when their hypocrisy is exposed as a crass deceit. Let me tell you, anywhere God's Word is doing something in lives, Satan is there. He's studying, he's setting out tactics, he's probing weaknesses. And he's looking for a way to get inside. If he cannot come in the front door, he'll come in the back door. He'll come in a window. My son-in-law was at my house yesterday. He's a contractor, and we were outside, and he pointed to the place where my air conditioning unit sends the cable into the basement. And you know how it goes through the siding, and there's a a hole there, and, and you always caulk that hole. And there's a little bit of a gap. I couldn't even put my little finger in that gap. And Kevin said, Dad you better caulk that. You'll get a mouse in there. I said, Kevin, I couldn't even put my little thing. He said, if it's the size of a pencil, a mouse can get in. I'm going to caulk tomorrow. And I believe that that's exactly the kind of a gap that Satan looks for in a church. Any place small enough that he can insert himself, he will. Count on it. I've been a pastor too long. I know what I'm talking about. The world's primary knowledge of Jesus Christ is what people see in the lives of Christians. It's not their reading of the word because for the most part they're not reading the word. They're not studying the word. You are the word of God to many people because they know you're identified with a gospel church. So they said, let's look at David. Let's look at John. Let's look at uh, Rebecca or whoever. You know they go to that church where the gospel is preached What do we see there? And that's what they're asking. What does their marriage look like? How are they behaving? Do they tell the truth? Can I rely on them? Are they honest? And you know, if they see Christians acting with greed, with double-mindedness, with selfishness, with fraud, they will be all over it. And they will scorn not only you, but the church you represent and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you represent. Hypocrites in the church, and they'll write us off. Well, first today, I want you to observe something here. The great power and grace at work in the early church. We're told there was great power and great grace. Acts 4.33 Describes here the cumulative effects of the clear preaching of the resurrection, combined with miracles of healing, bold opposition to angry authorities, visibly changed lives. All these things added up were causing people to say, What's going on here? And they concluded that something called great grace was going on. God's presence, God was at work. The scholars and historians speculate that probably by this time, something way over the original 3,000 converts, because converts were being made all the time, there could have been as many as 10,000 people in a relatively small city called Jerusalem that now were following Jesus and were gathering on a regular basis and worshiping. And they had this tremendous unity of the presence of God by his spirit in them all. You know, I see enough... Just in our own Presbytery and its churches to know you can have a hundred people in a congregation and have terrible disunity. Here were thousands that were bound in great unity. And verse 32 tells you the secret of that because they were, quote, of one heart and soul. They were connected intimately at the most important points that people can be connected. Their hearts and their soul and their minds as well, of course. They were consumed by one great overwhelming objective and one great person, the Lord Jesus Christ. They belonged to him and so they belonged to each other. And people who are belonging to one another this way, let me tell you, when they're carried away in homage to an infinite divine Lord, they become an unstoppable force, whether there's 30 of them or 3,000 or 10,000, you can't stop them. We've had some amazing things in our news this past week. I hope you've had occasion to give God thanks for the way we were spared by this hurricane, I'm still wondering if I understood the weather maps correctly. The eye went through Lancaster County. Where was the damage? I don't understand. I look at Atlantic City. I look at New York City. And I see this terrible devastation. God spared us in an amazing way. But you know, as we watch all the government responses, the FEMA agency, the federal government, the the governor's doing everything they could do, and they're the primary ones responsible. The Red Cross, all these agencies, combining forces, coming in to bring in supplies and generators and fix the power and erect shelters. I was working on this text and I was thinking to myself, what if all those, all that manpower, all that organization, all those truckloads of resources were sent out to all the places of greatest need along the coast and they got there and when they arrived, they found out that the common everyday folks in the neighborhood had taken one another in and were feeding each other and some of the men or women who had knowledge of these things were out up the electric poles reinstalling the electricity, and all the experts got there, and they weren't needed. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Now, indeed, there were people doing those things, individual citizens. But what if, what if citizens and neighbors had gone to work And in an amazing way helped one another so there was nobody to populate the Red Cross shelters. Well, let me tell you, that is what happened in Acts. There were no social service agencies. There was no Red Cross. There was no social security. There was no medical insurance. There weren't even any hospitals. What does a poor person or an injured person or a sick person do in a society like that? Well, by and large... Let me tell you what they did. They died. But among the Christians, look what was going on here. Without being compelled to do it, without having a program organized, without having anyone dictate and say, you must give so much of your money to help, nothing like that, spontaneously the Christians took care of each other. John Calvin commented on this passage to say we must... Have hearts of iron if we are not moved by this narrative. I don't think he was writing in the in the 1500s, and Calvin said, "When so many in our time not only jealously retain all that they possess and callously rob others, I don't think Calvin's time has changed to our time, has it?" In fact, we have an example pointed out here, and I think he's pointed out because we're going to know this man well later in Acts. Joseph called Barnabas, a man from Cyprus. He's going to be known as the intimate companion of Paul later on, one of the apostles himself. He's not quite that well-known yet, but here he is first pointed out, first introduced, because of his act of generosity, selling a field. I don't know what he got for it. Let's say he got $10,000 for the field. And uh, he came and he said, all right, here's the check they gave me when, the, when I sold them the field. Peter, here's the $10,000. Use it however it can best be used. And you would assume, of course, Barnabas got a, a good reputation for that. That's the kind of man he was. He was an other-directed person. He was an encourager. His name meant the son of encouragement. He was a relational guy. He was a servant And he was famous for that in the church. Well, unfortunately, other people wanted that reputation without making the sacrifice. And so we come to the second point in Acts 5, which I call this the great deception in the hidden depths of Christian character, at least some Christian character. Because alongside Barnabas, we have two other people known for a very negative reason, not a positive reason, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we're told that this couple also had some land. They sold it. Now, remember, no one had done away with private property. Peter proves that here when he says to them a bit later, wasn't the land yours to keep? You didn't have to sell it. And if you sold it, wasn't the money yours to keep if you wanted to or any part of it to keep or give? The problem with Ananias and Sapphira, be very clear, was not the fact that they kept part of the money but that they pretended they were giving all of the money they were living a lie they pretended they were doing exactly what barnabas did and they wanted the good reputation of that they said oh yeah, yeah yes yes we sold a field too secretly the field was sold for 10,000 they brought six and they thought well nobody will know that our land brought Six or 10 or whatever. That's our business. We'll make it as if it's sold for six. And you know, some of us look at this and say, why is this such a big deal? Don't you? Really? You think of what you do on your taxes, if you itemize deductions, maybe you come up with, well, I don't know, $14,000 worth of itemized deductions. And you know that if you really went back there and scrupulously did the math, it would be 12, not 14. And you think, well, 14's a believable number. Oh, yeah, it's not that big a thing. God says it's a big thing. To him, there are not little white lies, there are big black lies this incident is often compared to something that happened in the old testament in the book of joshua chapter 7 israel was moving into the promised land at long last after finally arriving at the borders joshua was leading them they went in against the city of ai which wasn't such a great city it should have been easily taken by israel's numbers they attacked ai and they were miserably defeated And Joshua came to the Lord and said, Lord, why did you lead us here? And he had this very whiny prayer. He said, you brought us here to let us be defeated. And the Lord said, Joshua, you were defeated because there's fraud in the camp. Oh, what's that? Someone has kept back some of the plunder that they were ordered not to touch from the conquests. And that someone was named Achan and in the tent of Achan was found buried the things he had taken, the, some gold and some other things that he had desired. The Lord had allowed Israel to suffer a defeat because of Achan's dishonesty. You say, that wasn't very fair. Well, there, like here, God was making a point. Lying is despicable. Lying and dishonesty by God's people claiming to be his people is particularly despicable. And in fact, it's a lie to God. Now somebody says, do you mean God goes around killing people who lie? I would argue that God didn't kill anybody here in Acts 5. Two people died from shock. I don't know what it was. Physiologically, our doctors might say there could have been a number of causes, a sudden... uh, aneurysm in the brain, a heart attack, but when the shock of exposure of their blatant lying was confronting them, they fell down dead. One commentator tried to have a light mood towards this and he said, you know, it's evident that both Ananias and Sapphira said when they came in, so there was some kind of a meeting or something going on or maybe a, a teaching time or a worship time that they individually came in three hours apart. And the one commentator said, maybe they were singing the hymn, I Surrender All. And Ananias and Sapphira were supposed to join in that hymn. And if they did try to join in that hymn, their voices must have sounded like a jazz saxophone accompanying a Handel aria. It just wouldn't fit because they were not surrendering all. Peter raised this situation to a very high level and said, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. Remember something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when he said, do you Christians not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit dwells lives inside you and sees what you are. Do you really think you can hide what you are? You can deceive other people. I could deceive my wife. I won't get away with it for too long, but I get away with it for a while. I could deceive other people. I could deceive all of you, I dare say, on some small matter. But do I really think God wouldn't see my deceit? God the Spirit who lives within me Psalm 51 talks about truth dwelling in the inward parts. And we want God to see us in the inward parts. And be sure of it, he does see us in the inward parts. Now, people aren't regularly struck down dead for lying. You know, if they were, every time we sang I Surrender All, we'd have to have a morgue set up in the basement. And we'd trundle the bodies down the elevator, I suppose. There wouldn't be anybody left living in America if people died every time they lied. But obviously, God used this as a dramatic example of something that was not a rare sin. It was a common sin but it saw this rare and immediate punishment which is only the indicator of the ultimate punishment that someone without Christ as their covering will see in eternity before God the judge that this falsehood that God hates is taken with great seriousness. It's a blockage to worship of God. It's a blockage to the Christian life and it ruins fellowship. It ruins the life of the church. Now, here's a question that often comes up, and I admit I've pondered it, and I don't have the answer. Remember that. I said sometime I didn't have the answer to something. Uh, People say, were Ananias and Sapphira authentic Christians who died because of serious sin but nevertheless went to heaven because they were justified through Christ? Or were they possibly phonies, apostates, who never knew Christ at all, were not redeemed in the first place, were only acting, and they died the death of the lost reprobate. Well, my answer is this. First of all, remember that Christians can certainly commit every sin, the worst sin, and be forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean we run around sinning because we know we're forgiven, but we cannot lose our salvation by anything we do if we belong to Christ. But on the other hand, possibly this husband and wife were castaways, were reprobates. They were not genuine in their faith. I don't know the answer, and I don't think anyone else does. I don't think we're given enough information to decide that. I think we have to look at these people and say there, but for God's grace go I. Maybe we'll meet Ananias and Sapphira, tremendously chastened in heaven one day. Maybe we'll never see these people. But you know, I wonder if Peter was thinking of these people decades later when he wrote his first epistle. Peter, who was there and spoke to them, wrote 1 Peter 4.17 where he said, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey God? In other words, if this is what happens to a Christian, Think of the person who comes to the ultimate judge in eternity with no shelter for his sin. Thirdly, I would ask you to look at Acts 5.11 for the outcome here. Once the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira were carried out and buried, we read great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Not only those in the church, but those outside heard of this and said, whoa, what is that God? Who is that Jesus risen from the dead? That truth-telling matters so much that people die. And we would say this great fear attending the church is something to think about. It's not terror, although there probably was some element of that among people. But the fear of God, you've heard many times before, is not just about the scary stuff, the you know, the Halloween movies and all of that. No, it's about wonder. It's about awe. It's about deep respect. And people looked upon these events and said, Why, this is something I've never heard the like of. What is this God? Who is this God that things like this happen? It was probably a bit like what 1 Corinthians 14.25 talks about when it says, Paul writes there about strangers, unbelievers, coming into a worship service. And he says, when they come in and hear you giving the praises to God and thanking God and so on, they will look and they will listen and they will exclaim why God is really among these people. That's what this is about. The early church was worshiping a God who would not be trifled with, to whom truth meant something. A God who can be loved, but also must be respected and obeyed. And let me just slip in the notice for you that there's another first here. For in Acts 5.11, there's a word that occurs that hasn't occurred up to this point in Acts. It's the word church. The body of Christ for the first time is called the ecclesia, the church, here in Acts 5.11. The body of God's people who were one in heart and spirit, who all believed that Jesus Christ was risen and he was Lord and Savior, who all were filled with the Holy Spirit, who were given a great holy pause before God, this great God whom they worshiped and yet loved and yet had to respect. This was the one true God, this God of the church. I have three quick applications for you to hear from this text, 21st century applications. First this, pride and seeking after acclaim and reputation among the body of Christ is something we all have to be careful about, whether you're the preacher, the elder, the Bible study leader, the everyday Christian. We all want to look good. To one another, we all want to give some kind of a fairly good impression to other people. You know, I'm convinced the longer I live that the greatest fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that that, that is almost premier among all the others, is humility. Christ-like humility. It's a diabolical thing, you know, because you can't talk about humility and say, "Gee, I think I'm doing well with my humility." You're not, are you? But seeking to be like Christ, putting yourself last in line, considering yourself to be a sinner saved by grace, serving other people. One of the ways to be humble, I find, is to ask other people to pray for you and give them something specific. Don't just say, pray for me. Say, you know what? I'm really having a battle with blank. Would you pray with me about it? That's a tremendously binding thing because it says to that other person, you're ready to admit specific weakness. And guess what? They may very well say, you know what? You need to pray for me for that same thing or something else. It binds Christians together when we can humbly pray for each other. Secondly, another application here is that when we confess sins to the Lord, we need to be sure we're confessing not just external deeds. In fact, the longer you go on in the Christian life, the more you probably need to be confessing your thoughts and your motives as much as your actions. Somebody said to me one time, you know, the average more mature Christian ends up with a with an outside exterior life that looks pretty good. And it probably is pretty good compared to many other citizens. You know, you're not out there lying, you're not running a business that's victimizing people, you're you're basically a trustworthy good citizen and so on, you're not cheating on your spouse, your outside life doesn't have so many big obvious things to confess to God, but guess what? The more you go on with Christ in the Christian life, the more your confession before him probably ought to turn inward and say, well, what was my motive for doing that? What was I really thinking when I acted that way or said that? And that's not hyper-confessing. That's where a mature Christian lives. Because now you know that it's, it's from the heart that these things come. Jesus said a man looks on a woman to lust and he's committed adultery. And the mature Christian knows that and examines his life that way on the inside. Acts 24 has Paul saying that he kept his conscience clear before God and man. 1 John 1, 7 talks about walking in the light as Christ is in the light. What does that mean, walk in the light? It means let your life be transparent. Let God especially see. I mean, he sees anyway, but are you ready to tell him what you see and that you know what he sees? I was reading about some East African Christian believers who talk in their culture about living, quote, in a House without ceiling or walls. A house without ceiling or walls isn't much of a house when the hurricane comes, is it? But you know what they were saying? They were saying we need to live transparent lives. We need to be transparent with each other and with God. No barriers of deceit because deceit and lying and falsehood ruin fellowship. Third application is this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is without a doubt, clearly. The first example of church discipline in the New Testament church this action with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter confronting people on a known falsehood, and they suffered for it. Church discipline. We were hearing about it in the new members' class this morning. The church in every age has to recognize there are weeds that grow among the wheat. And it's not so easy to separate. A lot of times it's very difficult. God has given the elders, we're not going into a full discourse on church discipline here, but God has given the elders the responsibility to look at the church and weed the garden judiciously, carefully, confronting sometimes the weeds and saying, did you know there's a great big weed in your life? You seem to be the last person to know it. And it's dishonoring to the Lord. You need to deal with this. We want to help you with it. We want to pray with you, my friend. And if in the ultimate degree you meet refusal, you meet a blatant insistence, no, 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 not me, then maybe that's a weed that has to be dug out and tossed out of the garden. That's a hard, hard thing. Painful, difficult. Elders would rather do anything else, let me tell you. But it has to happen just as it happened here in Acts 5, to protect the garden and to warn the rest of God's people that God is a God of truth who does not tolerate things. Do you realize there was one group of people that Jesus insistently and persistently came up against with hard attitudes and hard words throughout his whole ministry? Who were they? The Pharisees of the temple who knew the law inside and out and whose lives did not conform to it. Jesus hated hypocrisy. And he confronted it with words. He called them whitewashed tombs, tombs that had rottenness and deadness inside and were all painted over on the outside. Jesus hated lying before God and double living. And yet he's the God and Savior who honors those of us who will seek after truth in the inward parts. Are we people of truth? Are we people who are honest about what's going wrong with us that we can confess it to one another and to to the Lord certainly and not misrepresent ourselves? Know this, folks. God's redeeming grace at the cross of Jesus is prepared to abundantly forgive the motives, the thinking, the actions of any humbled hypocrite. If you know that that's what you are and you're ready to say it and confess it to your great Savior, he will welcome you. Let's pray. Father, search me. Know my heart. May we all say, O oh God, test me and know our thoughts. See if there is some wicked thing taking root in us. And lead us in your way of truth that is everlasting. For Jesus' sake, amen.